I want to ask that you would please open your copies of God's Word to the book of James. We are starting a new book this morning. I won't give you a whole lot of um, introductory comments on the book of uh, James other than to say it's uh, thought to be one of, if not the earliest of all the epistles. And so you'll notice as you read it, it's a little different than some of the other epistles you might be uh, familiar with. We'll talk a little bit more about the author and the audience and so forth as the sermon gets started. So what we're going to do is we're going to read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. 1 through 12. This is God's holy and inspired word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him who asks, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Lord, we have read your word, and oh, how we love your word. It gives us the light that we need. And yet, Lord, we have been told by you that the Spirit will lead us into all truth. And Lord, you know that we need help in understanding your word. So we pray that as we meditate and think about your word, you would help us to continue our meditation. And we pray that you would guide our thoughts and our minds. Lord, we pray that you would even search our hearts and our circumstances, that you would take uh, these words, that you would apply them in our own hearts, in our own lives. Uh, Lord, would you Help us as we meditate upon your word. Would you give us focus, Lord? Would you help us uh, to concentrate and to think upon you? Would you show us your character? We'd ask it in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, I want to start by saying something pretty obvious. <laughs> Life can be tough. It can be scary at times, and that is uh, for each and every one of us, from the youngest of us even to the oldest. I remember um, 
moving to a new city when I was 14 years old. I didn't uh, know anybody. I had never, I had grown up in one town at one home. Um, Certainly I'd been to other places, but it was a new city. I didn't know anyone there. Um, I had just started high school in my own city. Now I was going to a new high school. I didn't know anybody there. Um, I had to leave my friends behind, my family behind, the house I grew up in behind. The point is, is that change is hard. It can be hard. It's hard on all of us, regardless of age. I'm sure you hear even your own children's fear as they have to go to new schools where they change from elementary to middle. There's that fear of change. We all face change whether we want to or not. We face hard tests such as accidents and sickness and poverty and the death of loved ones and anxiety. But we also face trials that come from prosperity, don't we? I mean, you can think about that. For instance, promotions bring change. Moving, long work hours, more stress, prosperity in wealth and knowledge and skill can all be source of trials. Hardships and prosperity. Hardships and prosperity. They both test our faith. They, they sift us. They challenge us. They, they stretch us. And you can see in verse 2 and verse 12 that this passage is about the trials of life. And James says that God produces endurance and spiritual maturity through the hardships you go through. In this passage, you'll learn that Christians should respond to trials by rejoicing at the maturity they can foster, by asking God for wisdom, and by embracing their exalted position. You see, you should trust God with your trials. Christians can rejoice because of the promises contained in this passage. There are several promises we'll find in this passage today. So what are they? What are the promises that we find here? That's the question we're going to answer. And we'll start with our first heading, which is, Trust God's promise of redemption. Trust God's promise of redemption. So the first thing we should probably do before we begin is just talk about who is the author, who is he writing to, when is he writing this book. Uh, The bulk of the evidence points to James, the half-brother of Jesus, as the author of this book. Uh, He is a pastor of one of the churches that is in Jerusalem. And he wrote this to Christians that are living in the surrounding region. He likely wrote this letter from Jerusalem between 46 and 48 AD. Um, What does that mean to you? Well, it means if you were to start to read the book of Acts, uh, this letter was probably written somewhere around chapter 13 or 14. So you might remember there was a great persecution that arises um, after Stephen the deacon is killed. In chapter 8, that persecution arises. And in 15, there's that great council, that kind of presbytery meeting, if you will, that happens 
um, where they talk about the Gentiles and whether they need to be circumcised in order to be saved. So this is going to be a little bit before that. In verse 1, he writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. You'll notice that James right away he refers to himself as a servant or as a slave of Jesus. And that's because Christians commit themselves to Jesus as their absolute master. James recognizes that he is a man under authority. And in verse 2, he tells the church, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He says, Count it all joy when you meet various trials. Count it all joy? Count it all joy? What are you supposed to do with this? Listen, this this isn't a call to just suck it up and to put on your happy face no matter what. No. We're told in Romans 12 that we are to weep with those who weep. We're not to try to stop them. We're to come alongside them and weep with them. We see Jesus enter the sorrow of others and mourn with them and weep with them. You're told to count it all joy when you meet various trials because Christians have been given a promise here. What is it? The promise is that God redeems the trials of his people. God redeems the trials of his people. What does that mean? That means that the trials that you experience are not in vain. God takes the evil you experience, the hardships, the sorrows. He takes them and he transforms them and he uses them for good. He redeems them. This text isn't suggesting that you should rejoice in the hour of crisis. No, It says that God redeems your trials and he uses them like a tool to shape your character, to mold you, to sculpt you into the image of Jesus. He uses them to mature you spiritually so you look like him with regard to your character, so that your heart is similar to his heart, so that you think like he thinks. He uses these things to mold us, to stretch us, to shape us. The text says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Do you see what it says? It says that you can know that the testing will produce steadfastness. You can know it. You can count on it. It is a promise. The testing of true faith produces steadfastness. And don't mistake the word steadfastness as referring to some sort of passive acceptance of things. The Greek word that is rendered into English as steadfastness carries the idea of staying power or constancy. 
a, a certain doggedness, if you will. Uh, when living faith is tested, it produces that, a doggedness and an endurance as it sincerely relies upon God. God redeems the trials that you go through and he uses them to develop this kind of endurance, this kind of steadfastness. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. The apostle writes, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. You see, the trials you endure aren't in vain. God uses trials to exercise our faith. When you first beginning, when you first begin to exercise, what happens if you get if you're one of those people at, in January who uh, are there in those first opening weeks of J- uh, January at the gym, you don't want to go there. It's full of all kinds of people who have made new commitments. But when you first go to the gym, you get sore, right? But if you continue to exercise, that soreness goes away. And that's a big disappointment to people who like to work out because they like that soreness. But, but we grow and we develop through that exercise. The same thing is true with running. The first times you go running, you are shortly out of breath, huffing and puffing. But if you keep at it, you build and endurance as you're continued to as you continue to challenge yourself and you're stretched you build stamina you build endurance you you gain a certain maturity that's what James is getting at in our text consider how verse 3 flows into verse 4 for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That word perfect could also be translated as mature. You see, perseverance produces spiritual maturity. It produces complete Christians. As a church, we've entered a trial. Have we not? Have we not? A time of testing. But we can be assured that the testing of our faith will produce steadfastness. And our steadfastness will lead to our spiritual maturity. And for that, we can rejoice. But it's not going to be easy, is it? We're going to have to walk in faith. We're going to have to exercise patience. What do trials do? Trials search our hearts and they expose who we're trusting in. Who are you trusting in? Where does your hope lie? You need to look to God who can transform your trials into benefits. Into benefits. You need to trust God's promise of provision. That's our second heading. That's what we're going to look at next. God's, trust God's promise of provision.
I've mentioned that we are going through a trial as a church, but some of you are going through trials in your personal lives as well. And when you're going through trials, you are often in need of provision. For instance, some people are in need of healing. Others are in need of being able to get medications so they could seek healing even through ordinary means. Some are needing to be comforted from a time of mourning. Others are overwhelmed by responsibilities. Some need counsel. Some need direction. They're in need of wisdom so that they know how to respond and what to do. Which door do I walk through, Lord? How do I respond? James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives wisdom generously. This is another promise, isn't it? Are you in need? Ask God for provision. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who does what? Who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom, isn't there? Have you ever met somebody who they've never gone to college? Uh, Maybe they didn't graduate high school. Maybe they didn't even go to high school at all. And yet they have an undeniable wisdom. Wisdom and knowledge are related, but they're different. Wisdom knows how to apply knowledge. Wisdom knows how to apply knowledge. Wisdom has understanding for living. And the scripture says that wisdom is rooted in the fear and reverence of the Lord. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10 says, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You see, wisdom begins with reverence for God. And yet, things are different between believers and non-believers, aren't they? In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Verse 14, it says that unbelievers can't understand certain things because they're spiritually discerned. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon a believer, they're born again, and the Spirit begins to renew their mind, to shape their mind after the image of Christ. All of the sudden, when that happens, all of the sudden, things like the Scriptures start to open up. Things that seem like riddles and impossible to understand begin to make sense. It's like someone comes in and turns the light on for the first time. And you look upon Jesus in the pages of Scripture and you see the perfect expression of the wisdom of God. And as we follow him and the Spirit of God continues his transforming work, you begin to gain divine wisdom. Verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. 
Translators have tried uh, to capture the sense of the original language here with that phrase, God who gives generously. They're trying to grab uh, the sense of the text, but they're also um, have that other side pulling at them where they want to uh, produce good English, right? And sometimes uh, there's a, a little bit of a struggle. How do we get the entire sense and keep the English good? But a more rigid literal translation of that phrase would be something like, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask the constantly giving God. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask the constantly giving God. And that is the character of your God. That is the character of Christ. Constantly giving. It's who he is. It's inherent to his nature. That makes sense, right? He's the creator. He's given life. He sustains life. It would make sense. He is constantly giving. If he wasn't, life would die out, would it not? Scripture says that he gives life and breath to all mankind. It says that he gave his only son as a sacrifice for your sin. And the question I have for you is, what good thing would he withhold from you? Romans asks that question, doesn't it? If he gave you his son, do you think he would withhold other good things from you? But maybe you see you don't understand You don't understand. I've bartered with God in the past. I've said, God, if you give me this thing I'm asking for, I'll do this in return. But I didn't keep my half of the bargain. How can I come to him again? I was unfaithful. Scripture says God gives graciously to all without reproach. God gives generously to all who ask without putting them down, without demeaning them, without being frustrated. But there is a qualification, isn't there? Faith. Faith. Verse 6 says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James drives home the futility of doubt. He pictures doubt as being the sea just rising and falling and twisting and turning and subject to whichever way the wind happens to blow. Does the Lord demand perfect faith? No. Jesus honored the stumbling faith of the distraught father in the midst of his trial. Do you remember? He said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Are you in need of wisdom? Are we in need of wisdom? If so, ask the Lord who gives generously. Ask in faith. What is it that you need? Philippians 4 says that God will meet every one of your needs. Not every want, not every desire, but every need. 
Are you in need of comfort? 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says that God gives comfort to the afflicted. Ask. Are you in need? Ask in faith. This text promises that God gives generously. If you've been humbled and you're in need, trust God's promise of exaltation. That is our third heading. Trust God's promise of exaltation. The trials we face can spring from hardships or prosperity. We talked about that earlier. Our default is to think of trials as something that, revol- um, that results from something negative or tragic, like perhaps getting into a bad car accident. But we need to remember that sometimes trials and temptations come from seemingly good things like promotions or maybe uh, relationships. When we face trials of various kind, we must keep an eternal perspective. In verses 9 through 11, James addresses the challenges we face when dealing with both riches and poverty. Draw your attention to verse 9. He writes, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. You see, the poor Christian must remember that he is rich in Christ. And the wealthy believer must flee pride and remember that they are morally poor and that they are in need of God's mercy. But being in need is very, very humbling. It's extremely humbling to have no money and to be dependent upon others for mercy. Nearly everyone agrees that poverty is a trial. And the Christians that James is writing to had it very rough. They were a super minority. They were not respected. Many times they were blocked from being able to buy things like groceries in the marketplace. If they were already known and marked out as a Christian, they were considered a no-hire, which just made things all the worse. They, they couldn't work. They had no money. And there wasn't things like government assistance, of course. If you were poor, you just went hungry. And you could only hide your poverty for so long because your clothes give you away. You can tell when someone is homeless, can't you? You could tell oftentimes by their clothes. They're dirty, they're torn, they often don't fit. And the poor are often treated with contempt. James talks about how they were treated in his own day. He says that the poor man enters a crowded gathering and he's told he could take his seat on the floor. Maybe you can sympathize with the poor Christian and how he might be tempted when he faces these kinds of pressures. And that's because you can guess what your reaction to these things might be. You might be tempted to envy. You might be tempted to resentment or covetousness. Your pride would certainly be provoked. You might, in the long run, become an angry person. This trial would be difficult. 
But this passage calls the poor Christian to be steadfast. It calls them to persevere, to seek the wisdom of God, and to have an eternal perspective that looks past the temporal and looks to their eternal inheritance to say, I may be poor, but in Christ I'm rich. Believers are God's children, are they not? In Romans 8.17 it says, And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. The scripture promises that in eternity believers will inherit the riches of Christ. The promise is so sure, James tells the lowly brother to do what? To boast. You don't have it now, but you can boast because this promise will be fulfilled. You will be exalted. James has words for rich Christians as well, doesn't he? Verse 10 says that they are to boast in their humiliation and remember that riches are like a wildflower and grass that will pass away. Again, this is a call for eternal perspective. Having some money comes with its own temptations, doesn't it? Rich believers might be tempted to trust their wealth and power or their ability and status. There might be a temptation to be sinfully self-confident and self-reliant and in that sense forget God. And sometimes you don't realize this is a problem until the trial strikes and the money is taken away. There's also a temptation for the rich for hoarding their money or for being tight-fisted or perhaps to have a heart ambition that wants to collect money. Scripture gives believers many warnings about money. And in this passage, James is calling the wealthy believer to have an eternal perspective about wealth. On earth, we can talk about things like poverty and the middle class and the upper class. On earth, we can talk about these things, but eternity is the great leveler. You might enjoy being high class now, but like the flower of the grass, that is going to pass away. Verse 11 continues this line of thinking, adding, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. Knowing this, the rich believer must fade away and die to the world's understanding of wealth and status. They must understand that they are not greater than others. They're sinners who must be saved by grace alone. They must boast in God and not in their wealth. The rich are to boast in their humiliation. They're to recognize their poverty before God. The Apostle Paul is a great example of someone who was poor, but who could boast in his exaltation. 
His eyes were fixed upon the finish line. And God gave Abraham the promised land, and he made Abraham rich. And yet Abraham demonstrated humility. You remember when he was with Lot, and they were both just increasing. The land couldn't contain him both. And Abraham gave Lot the, the choice of whichever part of the land he wanted. Whether you're rich or poor or somewhere in between, this passage teaches that Christians should strive to maintain an eternal perspective. You should acknowledge the challenges of your circumstances and the temptations that you face. And then you should boast in the promises that God has given you in his word. James finishes by pointing his readers to the Lord's promise of eternal life. In verse 12, he writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You remember Jesus promised, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. One thing's certain. You're going to face temptations and trials. But God has given you promises in this passage to cling to. God uses trials to reveal your spiritual flaws, to transform your heart, and to complete you as a Christian. He's calling upon you to be steadfast and to endure. And he has promised to give wisdom generously. Plead with God for wisdom and love him enough to trust him to provide. Keep an eternal perspective. When I began, I I started by telling you that when I was 14, I had to move to a new city. What I didn't tell you was that the reason that I had to move to a new city is because uh, my father had just recently died about a, a year, two years before, and my mother had got uh, remarried. And so I had to move. And these were hard years in my young life Little did I know that that chain of events would lead to the greatest gifts God has ever given me. A few months after being forced to move, I met the young girl who would become my wife. And a few years after that, we both met our Savior who promised to forgive our sins and to give us the crown of life. Sometimes the most beautiful things that we'll ever receive are right around the corner. Hang in there. Trust God's promise of redemption, provision, and exaltation. Trust God with your trials. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask that you would help us. Certainly, when we look at your word and it says things like, hey, you've entered a trial, rejoice, we think. 
How can I rejoice, Lord? I can't see like you see. But Lord, we understand that we can rejoice only having faith in these kinds of promises that you've given. That you are going to use these things that we don't want, even for our own good. And Lord, sometimes, oftentimes, we can't see it. We're forced to just trust. Lord, you know our trials. You know our trial collectively. And you know individual trials within homes. Lord, we would lift ourselves up to you. Would you make us steadfast? Would you give us that kind of constancy and doggedness to believe and to understand that you are going to use these things for our good and to shape us to look like Christ? It's part of even our discipleship. You've redeemed these things. And Lord, we would certainly ask for wisdom. Would you give us wisdom that we would know how to navigate hard things? Lord, help us with these decisions. Help us with these things, we would ask. You said you give generously, Lord. We believe. Help us with our unbelief. Lord, we are clinging to that end, that all things are moving the way that they ought, and that one day we will see you face to face, that we will enter into that garden that you have prepared. And we will walk with you. Lord, we are looking forward to that day, that day of exaltation. Help us to hold on. Lord, we would ask that you would hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.